Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 72. I'm Steve Kwan. And I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Matt, what's up? Not much. Let's chat about some technique chains. Yeah, that's a good idea. So mental model we talked about in the past is the concept of technique chaining. And what this basically means is a single technique is going to be less effective than several techniques chained together. Now, if there's one thing I have learned from a lifetime of playing video games like Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat, it's that combos are important. So that's what we're going to talk about today. (laughs) You can always learn so much from video games. It's actually true. And I mean, you could be talking about technique chaining as if like, uh, as in going for a technique and it fails, but you already have a, uh, you already have another avenue of techniques that you're planning to explore or it could be attacking multiple techniques multiple systems at once for example crucifix with a kimura or um, rear triangle with a kimura usually i find kimura is a big a big aspect of connecting multiple systems together just because the rotation of the shoulder provides such a strong control and then it leaves your legs open to trap your opponent's torso in other ways so if you're looking for technique chaining and combining techniques, the Kimura is a huge, a huge thing to know. Yeah. And a lot of techniques kind of start off that way when you're chaining them together. Usually there is a first grip, which is maybe not the strongest, but it's enough to get some leverage over your opponent. And then you use that to chain into progressively more and more control to the point where you hopefully lock up a submission on your opponent. And the Kimura trap is a great example of that because you're starting off with this Kimura grip and you're usually doing it from a position where it's going to be realistically hard to finish the Kimura. But the idea is by using the rotation, you just continually force your opponent into a more and more inferior position until hopefully eventually you can get the tap, right? So the idea is your first technique often by itself is not going to be enough to do the job. And this took me a long time to understand when I was training, you know, as we do when we're in class, usually there is a technique of the day. And when you try that technique in drilling, you're able to make it work. But as soon as you do it against a resisting opponent, no go, right? Mm. <laughs> very, very common and frustrating thing for grapplers is when they're trying to do what they did in class 10 minutes ago and against a resisting opponent, they just can't make it work. But in the real world, that's the most 
common scenario. You're probably going to find that the first thing you try to do, if you're attacking your opponent when they still have good alignment, it's not going to be enough to get the job done unless they're just making a catastrophic mistake. But what the first thing is going to do is is going to create openings. It will hopefully take your opponent a bit out of alignment. It might create some Kazushi and get them moving a bit. And then your follow-up attack is going to be a little bit more effective because you're attacking someone who might be just a little bit off base or maybe their structure or their posture is compromised. And maybe that second attack isn't good enough either, but then the third one might be. And that's why in a lot of gyms, when they teach techniques, you'll notice they teach them in a sequence. So for example, they'll say like, here's the first thing to try. And if that fails, here's the second thing to try. And if that fails, here's the third thing to try. And a lot of instructors will pattern a whole class around that structure. So what they're really doing when they do that is they're acknowledging that a single technique in isolation probably isn't going to be good enough and that it is the chaining of techniques that's going to ultimately open up windows. Yeah. And then to add a conceptual approach, also considering breaking alignment on, along the way, because that's really going to be your, um, your, the, the area where you're going to achieve the best control. For example, a Kimura without actual rotation of the shoulder is just a figure four lock. It doesn't actually break your opponent's alignment, but if you can open the elbow, now that shoulder is completely vulnerable and you can transition to other positions as well. Um, Rob calls this alignment over position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is actually a really important thing to understand when you're going for a move, particularly if you're doing it from the bottom, like in guard. You know, when you're going for an arm bar from guard, unless you're like Fedor Emelianenko, the odds of you actually just getting that arm bar probably not super high. But what you want to do is you want to use that arm bar basically as a position in and of itself and you, you use it as a lever. So your goal is not necessarily to just bang off random moves. Your goal is to progressively break your opponent's alignment more and more with a series of attacks that all play off of each other. So that's what we mean when we say alignment over position. It's not even a matter of just trying to advance positions. It's just a matter of trying to chip away at your opponent's alignment until you can finish the fight yeah and the idea of chaining techniques together is all throughout all combat sports so whether it's going to be striking boxing muay thai or if we're talking about like chain wrestling or judo all of these sports involve combinations when you get to the highest level and they all base there a lot of them are based upon predictable reactions so you know if i if i shoot in and my opponent sprawls i might need to go around the side i might need to switch to the other leg or you know whatever happens you have um a sequence or multiple sequences that you can go through uh, to get to the next position. Because at the highest level, let's be honest, you're you're expecting your opponent to be able to have, you know, a, a competent level of defense for your attack. So that's when these sequences really start to manifest themselves. Yeah, when you're just hanging out and, and someone's in your guard, for example, or when you're standing up at the beginning of a fight, it's tricky because you don't know what your opponent is actually going to do, right? But if you lead with an attack, even if it's an attack that you don't think necessarily is going to work by itself, it sets off that series of predictable responses. And that kind of narrows the number of possible futures down to something that is more reasonable for you to control, right? So as an example, like if I'm on the bottom and Matt's in my guard, 
I, I used to think like, you know, I'm just not going to try like an arm bar from here because I'm never going to get it. But what I realize now is it's not actually about getting that arm bar. It's about forcing Matt to respond to me rather than giving him open season to just do whatever he wants. If I'm just sitting down and I'm playing guard, Matt can do whatever he wants. But if I attack an arm bar, well, I know now that there's maybe like three or four likely defenses he's going to use. So even if the arm bar in itself isn't enough to, to get the job done, it might create Kazushi. It might break his alignment a bit. And more beyond that, it might reduce the number of options that Matt has so I can more easily predict what he's going to do. And then I can respond more rapidly, which again, puts the ball in my court and keeps me in control of the fight, which is so important. Yeah. In terms of there's kind of like a, a spectrum. I think right now we're kind of discussing, you know, earlier stages when you're just starting to mount attacks or you just got to your guard and now it's time to you know, do do things to initiate the sequence and things like that will be like Kazushi creating limb extensions. So your opponent's going to have to base on the mat so they don't get swept in a standing scenario. It, uh, it would be something like foot sweeping. Right. So coaches, Ochigaris, things like this footwork, it all creates reactions. I mean, essentially uh ashiwaza like these foot sweeps is basically it's like a jab if we're if we're putting it in terms of like striking arts so you know these these movements are um they create reactions they're very effective they're effortless when when done properly and uh you really don't commit a whole lot going for them so it's you know uh, if you can you can definitely init start you can start initiating these sequences with particular techniques like kazushi and foot sweeping. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that a, a good takeaway there, something that you mentioned is you want to have jabs at your disposal. You know, in, in the boxing world, for example, we talk about jabs and even in Muay Thai, you know, there's basically the, the concept of like leg jabs where basically you're just doing like probing distance attacks. Um, and the nice thing about these is they allow you to basically dictate the pace and control the distance without putting yourself at tremendous risk. And in jiu-jitsu, I encourage you to have kind of the same concept of jabs, where for, from every position, you want to basically have like an opening salvo, a, a series of tactics that you can use that are very low risk to yourself mm -hmm. that you can bail out of if something goes wrong, but they're enough to kind of jab your opponent to basically put the ball in your court and to force them down a predictable path. So an example for me, and this is probably going to vary depending on your body type, right? But for me... If I have someone in my guard, I might fake out an arm bar or I might fake out an omoplata because if it goes wrong, I have a lot of good options that I can chain off of there. I'm not really compromised. I don't like to lead off my guard attacks with a triangle because if it goes wrong, it's probably going to be a bad day for me, especially being a smaller guy, right? So when you're coming up with your chain, it's good to make sure that the first step of your chain is like a jab, right? Basically, it should be something that you can use to just probe, to get a reaction, to control the distance. But if it doesn't go the way that you want, that's okay. You have the option to bail out. So be careful when you're choosing that jab technique because you don't want something where if it goes wrong, you're going to get smashed every time. Yeah. I, aside from Ashiwaza, I like... Uh you know, hand fighting, arm drags, I find very non-committal, but also very effective if you can catch the lever and redirect them. Um, in a gi situation, whether you're standing or sitting down, I think the cross collar grip is super effective because it adds, a, uh, it acts as a very good frame and you can also immediately break your opponent's uh, 
posture and break their balance and get dominant angles off of it. So even just like if I'm in the open garden, I have a, a collar position. I can immediately start threatening the collar drags. Yeah, so that's yeah. that's like another uh, non-committal grip that you can make. Exactly. I love the cross collar grip from standing. Um, you know, traditionally in judo, you often go for the same side lapel grip, but I, I don't like that as much. I find that's harder on the fingers. I find that you don't get as much leverage. Whereas if you go, if you don't the, get as much rotational whip yeah, as well. That's true. Yeah. Whereas I find if you go for the cross collar, first of all, your forearm is acting like a frame against their face. So it immediately controls the distance. Yeah. But second, you can do mean collar drags from that, right? If you've got that cross collar grip. So again, it's a very low risk technique. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, but you can just constantly be pulling on your opponent's collar to off balance them. Another thing I like to do is, you know, going for like jump guillotines, for example, because I find that I can do those and generally disengage if it goes wrong, but it constantly puts my opponent on the defensive and makes them have to think. So you always want to, from every position, have a few of those like jab techniques that you can use to start the chain of predictable responses and then you can start to chain your attacks together and I, I would suggest that rather than just like going in there with one or two techniques that you really like and just thinking like I really want to do a triangle so I'm just going to try and do a triangle I think it's better to think about this conceptually and think like what is my jab what are the moves that I can use from every position just to get the ball rolling and build off of that and then how do I build off of that yeah it's going to be a slightly different from gi and no gi because in gi you can set up your grips and those grips are somewhat sustainable whereas in your when you're in no gi it's more about like you know dragging and catching the end of a lever and things like that it's not going to be as uh, you can't just take a grip and hold it so um again talking about the engagement phase and we're talking about gripping it's really important to have grip sequences where it, let's say you have a collar and sleeve and then they stuff your leg in the middle you have to be able to have an answer for that otherwise you're you're going to get knee cut you know what i mean so there's there's lots of different uh sequences that apply in the gi that don't apply from don't apply in nogi and that's just because there aren't the same uh, options available without the kimono yeah yeah it, the grips ultimately are going to dictate the position right whatever you lead off with you want to make sure you control that grip fight even in nogi you still want to win the grip fight it's just a lot more fluid right in in gi if you win the grip fight you're kind of latched onto the person whereas in no gi if you win the grip fight well there's no guarantee that it's going to stay that way right because both parties are still able to move a lot so Unless, of course, by winning the grip fight, you somehow like jump right into a Kimura or jump right into a guillotine or a leg lock. That's a bit different. But in most cases, if you're going for things like arm drags, like once you've got the technique, that's not enough. Your opponent still has motion in most situations. Um, but all the same, though, you want to make sure that when you come out of that exchange, you come out with the dominant gripping situation or at the bare minimum that you can return to neutral, right? You don't want a situation where you attempt something and you have seated grips and now your opponent is on their way to passing your guard or advancing the position. Mm -hmm. and, and also when we're talking about technique chaining, I mentioned at the beginning, essentially what we're doing, you know, let's assume that we're now past the engagement phase and you know, maybe we've gotten on our opponent's back or maybe we're we're somewhere where we can isolate a limb. We, we got to start thinking about the main systems in jujitsu and how can we merge those systems. So essentially, like I use the Kimura as an example, just because one of my main goals on top is to isolate the wrist. And then from there, it's just natural to, to go for a Kimura and you can get such a high degree of control off the Kimura. From there, we can look to go to other options depending on our opponent, right? Like I know my opponent's going to try and 
improve the position of their shoulder once I get the Kimura. There's just, if they don't, then they're going to get submitted, right? So this leads down, you know, you could possibly go to the, uh, the, the inverted triangle. You could go to some form of a rear triangle or just, just back control with the Kimura um, and just transition from there. So thinking about how you can sort of take one system and incorporate a secondary system, making your attack that much more powerful. And then think about the critical controlling mechanisms in each system. So if I have a, you know, we kind of talked about this in that, uh, the seminar that we did online, Steve, about the inverted triangle. It's like, if I have the Kimura, what do we call that move, Matt? The Chinese buffet. Awesome. And why do we call it that? Uh, because Mike Lee is Chinese and he taught it to me. <laughs> no, it's just because there's so many options there, right? Like once you get the, the, uh, the, the, would that be an inverted triangle? It's like a, I think the way that you did it, it was like a side inverted triangle. Yeah. But the yeah. inverted triangle has that's kind the, of the same that, benefit. That's right? like the, the Brolio Estimo one. The one, the one where yeah. he, the guy's like almost passing your guard, but you catch the triangle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a huge fan of that triangle. I don't hit it too often, mm-hmm. but this one is really great because this one fits right into the uh, the Kimura, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I have a Kimura and then I'm looking to isolate the head and arm with my legs, I'm probably not going to let up on the Kimura until I catch a trap triangle on your head and arm. Because then once I get that, I know that you're, you're not going to be able to explode out of the position. Um... It would be kind of silly to have the Kimura and then let go of both grips before I have the head and arm. Right? So basically placeholders, right? What you're saying it's, is when, yeah. Yeah, when you're advancing your control, you don't want to let go of one thing until you've grabbed onto something better, right? Uh, the way that I like to think of it is if you're climbing a rope, like if you're going to, you let one hand go and then you grab up higher and then you, you let the other hand go and then you grab up higher. You never want a situation where you let go with both hands at the same time. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. And and you know, when, when you're attacking a position like the Chinese buffet or the rear, um, or, or sorry, the crucifix um i find the the way that i i think is the most effective is attacking both simultaneously and then whatever my opponent decides to defend i immediately switch to the uh my focus to the other submission Mm -hmm. all while maintaining control right so if i have a crucifix on you and your arm is trapped with my legs and then i have i'm going for a choke if you start defending the choke i'm immediately going to start to transition my focus to the arm so that you now have to switch again and start defending the arm in which case i can go back to the choke and so it becomes a perpetual attack between the two systems that i can use to eventually hopefully eventually i'll finish one of the submissions or some some would call that a dilemma that is a dilemma or or i'd like to be able to finish both at once that would be fun yeah really really again much like street fighter the purpose of technique chaining is to create constant pressure so your opponent is always on the, the the defense right and they're always having to react and the idea is that you know what those reactions are likely to be. And so you're ready for them. So you can jump on them beforehand. And that way you can keep constant forward moving pressure, right? You're constantly on the attack and your opponent is constantly on the defense. And as, lo- yeah, and as long as you can do that, you're going to win, right? Like if, if you can keep the fight such that you're the one always attacking and dictating the pace and your opponent is just on the defense, very, very unlikely that they're going to actually win somehow unless something totally crazy happens. So again, a dilemma is a great example of that because if you can create like a dual attack where your opponent basically has to go either down road A or road B and both of them are bad, like you're going to advance the position no matter what. Um, and I'll, once you start getting to things like the crucifix or the inverted triangle 
for example, a lot of those options um, come into play. But even from closed guard, you can do that, right? You very, very easy to chain attacks together in the closed guard and basically give that person that choice and say like, look, it's either going to be an arm bar or it's going to be a triangle. You can choose, <laughs> but it's going to be one or the other. Uh, and that kind of approach is extremely effective. Um, it's a lot better than just doing a move and giving your opponent the ability to like do a counter or get out. If you can create a scenario where really the only two paths forward are both bad, that's really, really good for you. So always think about that. Like if there's a, a move where the predictable responses are uniformly bad, that's awesome. I mean, an example that I've given on this podcast many times is if I have to choose between the Anaconda choke or the Darce choke, I'm going to choose the Darce choke. And the reason why is because let's say I do an Anaconda, like one of two things is going to happen. Either I get the Anaconda and I'm, I'm talking about like the, the Gator Roll version, right? Either I get the Anaconda or I lose it and now I'm on like bottom side control. Now, if you contrast with that with the Darce, the main difference with the Darce is either I get the Darce or I lose the Darce and I'm on top side control. Exactly. Yeah. So I, out of those two, I prefer the Darce because it creates a dilemma, whereas the Anaconda does not. The Anaconda is either I get it or I lose the position. Whereas the Dars is either I get it or I advance the position. Um, a lot of moves are like that. Like the Omoplata, for example, is a great one because with the Omoplata, either you get the sub or you get the sweep, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at like the triangle, for example, you either get the sub or you get passed. <laughs> so the odds are more in your favor with some moves than others. And that's important to consider when you're looking at how to chain your techniques together. Yeah, like finding, finding predictable reactions will just naturally create uh, systematic sequences. I don't mean systems like, um, like entering the systems. Yes. Or exiting. <laughs> um, I don't mean like, uh, you know, Kimura system back attack system, but I mean like you will find essentially groups of submissions that work, uh, together. Like Steve was mentioning, uh, Darce choke. Like I, I play from the top turtle, um, or top side control. I love playing, uh, uh, um, I rotate between the Dars, the Japanese necktie, and the arm and guillotine. And all these moves all have in common is they involve trapping the head and arm. And then depending on what my opponent does, I can think which which one of these submissions is going to fit my attack best, you know? And, and they're all pretty similarly relatable, and they all keep me pretty safe without giving up too much. So... Um, as just like if you're in side control, you start attacking the Kimura, they punch their arm straight, you have the straight arm lock and you have the Americana, like that's a classic sequence that we teach a lot to beginners, right? You'll, you'll find these sequences are everywhere, you know, rear triangle and arm bar, rear triangle and wrist lock, rear triangle and Kimura. So you'll notice that these moves, they're not really like, uh, they're not really like in exactly the same family, but they're within a family of sequences that you can use. Mm -hmm, Side mm -hmm. note, do you think Blanca did jujitsu? Blanca? That's a good question. Um, did you know that in the more recent versions of Street Fighter, they actually have like a female Blanca who does jujitsu? Really? Because Is she a black belt? I don't recall. She's Brazilian. And of course, she's wearing barely any clothes, but she can also do electrocution. So pretty but cool. Did they replace Blanca with her? Uh, I, do, I don't recall i think that they kind of i don't actually know i think they kind of run them in two different versions you can't replace blanca man yeah i think he did jiu-jitsu he is from brazil he is from brazil and as you know everyone from brazil does soccer and jiu-jitsu that's right <laughs> actually oddly enough the majority of people that i meet from brazil like just outside of jiu-jitsu don't do jiu-jitsu but they all 
love soccer. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think jujitsu still has a lot of growth potential, especially now because like literally zero percent of people are training. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's a that's a really good point, which is that uh, when you are game planning, you want to make sure that when you're chaining techniques together, you don't do things in such a way that you're going to result in losing position or in losing alignment. Um, so as an example, if you find as a grappler that when you go for a sub, like half the time you get it and half the time you lose the position and then the other guy's on top, that's a problem right there with your strategy, right? You got to change your strategy so that it's win-win for you either way. So a common example is like white belt goes to mount, gets mount, white belt goes for armbar, falls off, other guy's on top now. I love it when this happens to me, when like someone is kicking my ass and then they screw up and now I'm on top. I get a lot of submissions that way where I capitalize on the other person's mistake. And you start to realize when you get to a, a more advanced level that you've got to tailor your game plan so that doesn't happen. Like if your choice of submissions basically means like I win or I lose, yeah. that's not good. It should be either I win in one way or I win in another way. It should always be win-win for you no matter what happens. You don't want a situation where it's a roll of the dice and you might be seeding the entire position if you fail. Because the reality is against good guys, your, your submissions are going to fail more often than they succeed i find right so you want to make sure that even if things go poorly you're still able to tighten the tighten the noose somehow and again the probably the most common example i can give is people who go for the arm bar for mount and then just fall off and lose the whole thing yeah and that's just that's just a lack of understanding of alignment right if you mm -hmm. just fall over then you're not in base and then so your partner comes up and defends the arm bar and now you're on the bottom position right so it's like you mentioned steve it's really important to make sure that even if you aren't successful with your attack, you can chain together other attacks and maintain um, a good tempo and dilemma as you were talking, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, it, yeah, when you're in these, when you're, when you're chaining together attacks, you never want to give up ground. You always want to, uh, you always want to stay in a good position and structure your attacks in a way that if it fails, you don't lose anything or you don't concede anything and you can maintain your, your offensive. Yeah. And that's attacks. kind of a, a high level strategic a consideration that I don't hear anyone else talk about, but it's so important is to understand whenever you're looking at adding a, a tool to your toolbox, thinking to yourself, what are all of the predictable responses here? And are any of them so poor that I should consider a different technique, right? Because a lot of techniques do have a very high degree of sacrifice and you got to think, I mean, that's not to say you can't use them, but just if a technique results in a lot of risk to yourself, you only want to use those when you're kind of at the end of the sequence and you know that you're going to get it because your opponent's alignment is totally screwed, right? Mm -hmm. Like what you probably don't want to do is try to like throw up a triangle from guard and then hope that if it fails, you can go for an arm bar. It, it might work, but the odds of something going wrong are, are pretty great. Whereas if you go for an arm bar, if it goes wrong the triangle or the omoplata are there and you haven't really lost that much. So again, this mileage may vary depending on your body type, but I find that this is an important consideration. And for every single technique that you use, you need to kind of weigh those pros and cons. Or like flying armbar, no sequence at all. <laughs> yeah. Just, I'm going to try and finish this match as soon as yeah. possible. It's like momentum over alignment, basically. <laughs> I either win or my neck gets broken. Yeah. I either win the match or lose at life, yeah. basically. <laughs> so like that would be a, a strategy that's not really high percentage, nor is it really safe. Like the risk mm -hmm. versus reward ratio is pretty poor. So more important to think, how can I get to my choice positions? How can I now start off balancing and... Okay, so I get I get one attack. So maybe I isolated a single arm and I dragged it. So now I'm going to the back. 
what can I do next? I think a strong seatbelt would be a great option or a motorcycle control or even a Kimura control. And then from there, you can branch off to other options depending on what your opponent gives you, right? Mm -hmm. So this is sort of the mindset yeah. when, and, you're, when you're developing a, a game plan. Yeah, and a lot of this really is, I like, we're talking about funneling here, right? When you're creating all of these chains of techniques, ideally, you want to be chaining these together so that they get you back where you want to go. Like if you're a, if you're a top player, for example, or you, you're really like going to mount, then really what you want to do is you want to set up a series of, of chains of attacks that are likely to lead you to mount, right? So it's that's another consideration too, is thinking about what kind of game do I really want to play here? And from there, how do all of these moves and the, the various responses that can happen, how are they all going to funnel back to the position that I want to be in? Like, how can I take my opponent into the deep waters and make him fight where I'm comfortable versus where he's comfortable? So another consideration. Um, now, Matt, something that you mentioned earlier is that there's kind of two different types of technique chaining. Uh, one is what we've talked about so far, which is basically like a series of attacks. But the other is kind of when you do these in parallel, where you're kind of opening up multiple attacks and multiple dilemmas in parallel. So it's not just mm. a matter of doing like A, then B, then C, then D, but I'm kind of like doing A and B at the same time. Yeah. And my opponent then needs to pick one. So you're, you're running in parallel, basically, and you're forcing your opponent down a response. This is a great option because it, it just like overloads and overwhelms your opponent because they can't respond to everything all at once. You're just putting too many attacks in front of them. Uh, and this is another thing that I, I think that in jujitsu we always seriously want to consider is prioritizing positions where you have multiple attacks at your disposal versus just like one clear attack. And some very good examples you gave earlier were the inverted triangle, just a devastating position to get stuck stuck in because there's so many bad things that can happen to you or the crucifix is another good one um, or back mount for example is a very good one so many bad things that can happen to you i mean i always prefer taking positions where i've got a lot of attack options yeah. and my opponent can't realistically fight them all off at once yeah yeah those are great examples i think any example where you're getting double trouble is is a good example of this you know like if i'm in the saddle and i have the far leg it's really tough for my opponent to escape until they get that free leg out of there and, and you know that you can threaten many different um different different leg locks from this position and depending on how your opponent reacts you can also build your responses but even like a crucifix is an example of double trouble except it's with the arms and um <clears throat> I love it because on one hand on on one arm you're dedicating two of your limbs and on the other arm you're dedicating your your other two limbs your legs right so you kind of have a double two on one is extremely strong attack and then once both arms are out of the picture um if you can free up one of your arms, you have a free shot at attacking the head, mm -hmm. which again is super effective, right? We talked about uh, on the last episode, we talked about like what Wagner does with the Python control where he just grabs the guy's face and smothers it. Um, of course, cr cranking the neck to access the jaw as a lever is a really important way to control your opponent and break their posture. So these are all sort of like when I get into these positions, I don't really think about... Um, I am thinking about what move I'm going to look to to go for, but I'm also looking at how am I breaking their alignment, and I want to find as many different ways that I can break their alignment as possible simultaneously. So yeah. maybe I have like a body triangle with their arm trapped, and I'm neck cranking with a motorcycle control in my free hand. Like 
supreme control in multiple places of their body, right? Or I have like a Kimura control and I have a crucifix on the other side that's uh, starting to extend their arm and and threatening their, their elbow joint. So they have to adjust and, and defend that elbow joint. And now as they're doing that, I can go back to the choke, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's like many different many different ways to chain your attacks together. And I mean, it does, it takes time, right? It takes experience and it also takes some really good instruction. Take somebody who can show you, okay, like when you attack with these systems, your predictable responses from your opponent are going to be A, B, and C. So these are the, these are kind of high percentage attacks that I would recommend you start looking into from these positions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's super critical when you're attacking a position to look for ways to create that double trouble scenario where your opponent has more than one thing at risk. And that's how you kind of get away from those all or nothing situations. Like I can give you an example personally that I've used in the past. Um, I used to not really go for arm bars from mount at all because I found that one of two things would happen. I would either get the arm bar or I would lose the armbar, right? So if I get the armbar, obviously I win. But if I, I lose the armbar and I sit back, then my opponent is just going to get up I lost the position, right? And now I'm back to square one. I'm on the bottom now. So not good. So for a long time, I avoided arm bars from mount. But I realized eventually that the problem was I was basically not creating a situation where I win either way. I was attacking that posi- that uh, attack in such a way that it was win or lose. So the way that I fixed that was by adding an element of double trouble. So what I do now when I go up for an arm bar from mount, the first thing I do is I try to scoop the other arm. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually attacking both arms at once. And now this changes the, the situation, right? Instead of it being I either get an arm bar or I fall over... I try to finish on top without falling over if I can. And that means I either get the left arm or the right arm. So instead of it being win-lose, it's now win-win for me. I basically use double trouble to turn that into a, a double positive. And this happens in a lot of positions where if you're finding that like it's either going to be win or lose for you, you can turn it into win-win by just figuring out, is there a way that I can actually have two different attacks going on two different limbs at once? So that's something to think about. Like if you're putting all of your effort against one attack and if your opponent frees that, then you're done. <laughs> that's not good, right? There's always got to be a plan B. And sometimes the way to create that that plan B is to figure out like, is there another limb or including the head in this case that I can threaten at the same time? Yeah. Like if you, if you're, I wouldn't say exactly the saddle, but if you have like that knee bar configuration, you're always going to have a higher chance of getting the knee bar. If you have the free leg as well, just because it'll limit the, the movement and the rotation from your partner and it'll deny them the ability to get into base on the free leg. So, you know, the knee bar options will be there. And, um, same thing with the heel hook. Like when I'm going for a heel hook, I want to control the free leg as much, as long as I can until I at least get my dig. Because then, you know, if I, if, if I don't have my dig and I let go of the free leg, then I might lose my opportunity to dig the heel. So it's really important to always think about controlling the, the opposite uh free arm or leg, depending on whatever attack you're doing. Yeah, attacking from the bottom uh, for the legs is probably one of the best examples of how this plays in, right? Because if you are attacking like a standard Ashiwaza, where you're basically like just doing like st- standard straight ankle lock, and you've only got control of one of those guys' legs, it's not a great situation for you because if you don't get it, then you're probably not going to wind up in a great position. But if you can start engaging both legs, and that's when you start to get into positions like the 411 and stuff, right? If you can start attacking both legs instead of one, it kills a lot of your opponent's traditional escapes. And it means now that 
they have to worry about attacks from multiple different angles, which is mm. much harder to defend. So learning that fluidity where you can switch from one attack to another is super important to keeping the pressure up on your opponent at all times. Yeah. And also like sometimes you will need to abandon something. Like if you're going for the 411 and they turn out and you know there's no way that you can get the heal, there's no there's no reason to continue to attack the heal. Like that that opportunity has kind of come and gone at this point. So knowing when to basically abandon a technique and, and let's say transition to the back, which has now become exposed is, is um, an intelligent way to structure your game, right? Like knowing when, uh, just like when someone's grip fighting you and... They have a two hands on your on your sleeve and you're uh, you have a grip and they're about to break your grip. There's no point in holding on really tight because you're going to you're going to break your, your your fingers. Right. So it's it, it more more intelligent to, to abandon that grip and go to a different grip right away before your opponent can defend. And this is kind of the same thing with leg locks is, um, you know, uh, recently doing leg locks you realize that they're actually pretty difficult to get at the highest level, but they always usually uh, create a response of escape. So during this response of escape are great opportunities to come up and sweep or to attack the back because usually when your opponent's escaping these positions, they give you some degree of back exposure. And and so the 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 attempt is not really all for naught. You you still can get something out of it even if it's it's not a leg lock. Yeah, in a lot of ways, the opposite of technique chaining would be myopia, where you're just, you have tunnel vision, you have blinders on, and you're so focused on the thing you're trying to do that you're excluding all other options. And you're just hanging onto that thing like a monkey with their hand in a cookie jar, right? That is something you don't want. <laughs> um, and it's a very common mistake where people think there's a chance that maybe they've got that leg lock or that arm bar and they just keep cranking on it. But meanwhile, their opponent is already working on disentangling and getting out of there, right? So a big part of chaining techniques is knowing when a door has closed on you and moving on to something else. Like the whole idea behind chaining things together is you have a lot of options. So you have to be mindful of those options and don't get so fixated on what you're trying to do that you hold on to it while your opponent is like advancing position and passing your guard. I, I see that a lot where guys will like, they'll, they'll fall back for a straight ankle lock, for example, or an arm bar, and they just don't have it, but they won't let it go. And so they're so focused on that that meanwhile, the, the, the victim is getting up and starting to set up a pass, but the person on the bottom still hasn't abandoned it. Like that's not something you want to do. You want to know when one door has closed so that you can move on to something else. Yeah. And that type of, of awareness takes years of experience again, you know, but Again, the, the better your instructor is and the better that uh, your team is and your training partner is, partners are, um, you know, you're probably going to progress faster than if these concepts aren't even thought about at your school. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. And, and that's actually the sign of something that I, I like to see in a good instructor and something that I would encourage the instructors out there do, which is when you're going to show something, don't just show techniques in isolation, but explain what the predictable responses are and mm -hmm. then explain how to exploit those predictable responses and why you would do that and when you would do that. Like a, a mistake that I see a lot of the time in class classes is people will show like three different ways of doing something, but they won't explain why you would do it in one way versus another way versus another way. Um, so it's important as the instructor to explain how the series of attacks work, what to expect, and when you would use each different response and make sure that people really understand it. Because doing techniques in isolation doesn't work often, but the fluidity of ch technique chaining is what really allows you to advance and succeed at high levels. Yeah. Uh, one, one thing that I see sometimes, 
And if you're 10th planet right now, I'm sorry, I'm going to shit it on you a little bit, is like seeing some of the 10th planet flow sequences. They essentially will just be flowing through different submissions on someone who is not defending. So it's more about the person who's doing the technique will just like transition from a leg entanglement to an upper body entanglement. And they'll just like, they'll just be basically drilling moves on, on a unresisting opponent. I think a more effective way to drill uh, sequences and things like that is to actually create live reactions from your partner. So, you know, your maybe your partner has some level of defense, which allows you to actually see what the next predictable responses are going to be. Or if uh, a prime example would be like fuck your jujitsu, which is Rob's drill, where you're basically doing like live target sparring with particular handicaps, right? So if my partner is trying to stand on on top in my guard and I my entire job is just to sweep them and they're just basically basing out for me, I'm going to see a lot more of how their center of gravity works as opposed to just like practicing this sweep, practicing that sweep, right? And, and, uh, and not really programming in my own mind what is their predictable responses so i don't really think that it's great to be drilling uh doing drills on someone with zero resistance i don't i don't find that super effective unless you're unless you're literally trying a new uh, a move for the first time like you've never done a move okay now i'm just going to try it on a partner without any resistance but to get into these like flow sequences where your partner just lies there and you just drill moves over and over I, I think there's a better way to use your your time and it, and it's by adding resistance and adding live responses and reactions not just like because otherwise you might as well literally just be using a grappling dummy right? yeah yeah i agree i mean there is a place for no resistance drilling and that place is when something is so new to you that you can't even do the move without having to stop and think like if you're doing something for the very first time and it's complex and you like you can't even do it fluidly because you haven't like moved all of that stuff into muscle memory then sure there's some benefit to doing some no resistance drilling because that way you want to get to the point where you can at least do the thing without having to stop and pause and think but once you've gotten to the point where you can do those things fluidly you need to start transitioning your drilling to having a degree of resistance and then more resistance and then more resistance and the, the goal is to eventually get to the point where you're drilling against someone who's giving you something approximate to real sparring right but it's kind of a tricky balance because you don't want to jump into it too quickly like if you this is incredibly frustrating as someone who's trying to drill if you've never done a move before and you're just trying to get comfortable with it and your opponent won't even let you do it like that's a bad uke <laughs> right you need to as uke you need to know when your opponent is ready for a little bit more resistance and you need to have that open dialogue with them but yeah i agree with matt that like if all you're ever doing is no resistance drilling you're not likely to get very very good just doing that you need to get used to actually putting those predictable responses and that resistance into play mm -hmm. i've also done a drill before where it's like um it's like chess chess drilling where basically you're only allowed to make one move at a time you know so it's like you're on top and you make like one movement and then your opponent has it's like okay well this is going to be my response and they're allowed to create a frame or get a grip or whatever and then there from there on you do one movement at a time until someone either gets checkmated or you know whatever happens so it's it's kind of a, also another way to see if you make a uh if you make a move what's the direct reaction that correlates to that move from your from your partner so mm -hmm. that's a, that's another way to do things too is you can kind of slow it down and do it that way but to have someone just lie there and just you're doing your drills on them um that's 
probably not the best way to at least create predictable responses. I'm not saying that there's no validation to that type of training, but um, if you're looking to create sequences and chain attacks together, that's definitely not what you want to do. Another thing, another way you could uh, you could create uh, uh, chain attacks is by target sparring bad positions, right? So if someone starts on the back with a crucifix and I, you know, and you say go, uh, and you target spar from that position, you're going to quickly learn what attacks help you, uh, keep the position and prevent your opponent from escaping and also finishing, uh, a submission from that position. So I think that's a really good way to chain together attacks as well. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, we talked about a lot here today. There's a lot of concepts, and I'm cognizant of the fact that this is a pretty concept-heavy episode, so I want to spend some time just recapping them. Um, Matt, is there anything else you wanted to add on this topic before we get to that? Not that no, I can think good. of. Just knowing that like, it, it's it's a concept. Chaining and techniques is a concept that applies in all combat sports in pretty much all areas, right? So whether you're on the ground, whether you're standing... Um, you know, wrestling, judo, whatever, you're always going to see combinations and, and chaining attacks. So yeah. I like, you know, Dan Hur says it's always better to attack with multiple attacks than just one simple attack. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. And another, another benefit to doing that too, is it masks your intentions, right? As they say in striking, a lot of the time, the attack that knocks you out is the one that you don't see coming, right? And you're able to put that plan together by attacking in chains. And it's very much the same in jujitsu, which is that if you are very clearly doing one thing at a time and telegraphing that one thing, it becomes easy for your opponent to defend against that one thing. But if you're constantly attacking in series and from multiple angles, it becomes very difficult for your opponent to know what you're actually going to do. And that makes it very hard for them to respond to your attacks and to defend effectively. Yeah, even better if you're constantly off balancing them, which Mm -hmm. you should. Yeah, got it. Okay, cool. So just to recap what we talked about today, uh, when we talk about technique chaining, basically two different ways you can do that. One is in a sequence, which is where you know what the predictable responses are to a given technique. You're ready for those and you kind of line up a plan A, plan B, plan C, D, E, and so on. The second is attacking in parallel, which is where you are effectively opening up multiple bad situations for your opponents and they just can't realistically defend everything all at once. So even if they successfully defend one attack, you have other ones on the docket and they're just constantly in a game of whack-a-mole and they can never really keep up with all of the attacks that you're putting out. So really you want to employ both of those strategies when you are chaining techniques together. Now it goes without saying that technique chaining is a very high level advanced concept. It takes a long time to get good at, but you'll get good at it better if you're consciously working towards that rather than just putting random stuff in your head and hoping it sticks. So just to recap some of the mental models and concepts we talked about today, I mean, of course, technique chaining, the whole concept of this episode. Again, you can do this in sequence uh, and in parallel, but ideally you want to do both. We talked about the theory of alignment, where you've got posture, structure, and base, as does your opponent. And your goal, rather than just doing a single technique, should be to constantly wear down and chip away at your opponent's alignment. Now, again, we talked about alignment over position, which is the theory that, you know, not all variants of a position are created equal. Um, You can be in guard on bottom, and that can be advantageous or disadvantageous to you, depending on how well you're controlling your opponent's alignment. So your goal, whenever you're doing really anything uh, and when you're advancing position should always be to continually chip away pry at levers break base and so on we talked about kazushi 
One of the nice things about technique chaining is even if an attack does not succeed, it might off-balance your opponent, and that will make the follow-up attack more successful. So continuing to apply chained attacks against an opponent will stagger them and eventually allow you to have attacks that are more successful than the first ones you tried. We talked about predictable responses. The nice thing about chaining techniques is if I just let someone sit there in my guard or standing up with me, I can't control what they're going to do. There's infinite possibilities as to what could happen. But if I take the first attack, then my opponent is going to respond in a series of predictable ways. And that narrows down the possibilities from infinite to a handful that's more manageable and that I can be ready for. We talked about dictating the pace. So one of the benefits to constantly being on the attack and creating combos is that you are the one dictating the fight. Your opponent is constantly forced to react and respond to you. And it's very hard to win a fight that you are constantly reacting to. We talked about committed techniques. So the example we gave is that you want your opening attack to be like a jab where it's there to basically create openings, control the distance, but you don't want to be doing something at this stage that could put yourself at big risk. You want to do techniques that you can recover from if things go wrong. Uh, We talked about controlling the distance. Again, a big part of doing that jab technique is to keep your opponent where you want them to be. We've got so many things to talk about here. We talked about grips dictating positions. Um, Again, when when you're opening up a new attack, you don't want to see the grip fight there. Really, the first thing you should be trying to do is dominate the grips from the get-go. We talked about placeholders. This is the idea where if I'm trying to advance my grips or advance my position, I don't want to let go of one thing until I've grabbed onto something better. Basically, I always want to be doing something with my hands and my legs because if I let go and I'm not controlling my opponent at all, then they can get away and the position resets. We talked about a dilemma. So when you're attacking in parallel, you basically don't want to give your opponent a situation where they can either win or lose. You want to create a situation where they lose no matter what. So a good example I gave was like the Darce choke. If it succeeds, you get the tap. If it fails, you're probably going to wind up on on top in side control, which is superior to like the anaconda choke, because there, if you fail, you'll probably be the one on the bottom. We talked about funneling. So the whole point of building a technique chain is to take the game to your areas of strength. So when you're figuring out how to chain these things together, you want to guide back to the positions that you feel the strongest in. We talked about double trouble. So the idea that uh, one way that you create a dilemma and create openings is by attacking two things at once. So if you find, for example, that when you're like trying to attack an arm bar, if it's failing a lot and you're losing the position, a good way to strengthen that is to try to scoop up the other arm at the same time. So have two levers instead of one. We talked about myopia, which is kind of the opposite of technique chaining, where instead of trying to keep your mind open to lots of possibilities and fluidly switch between them, You're so focused on the one thing that you're trying to do that you exclude all other options, which might be better. We talked about training with purpose. So Matt, this was the example you gave of how if you want to specifically target drill an area of predictable responses, just tell that to your opponent, sort that out and have them help you train what they would do in a certain situation so that you can get more comfortable with those responses. And finally, we we talked about Jesus. I know, we talked about masking your intentions, meaning that the one advantage to technique chaining is your opponent never really knows what you're going to do. And as they say, you know, you you get knocked out by the shot that you don't see coming. And in jiu-jitsu, it's often you you get swept past or submitted with the attack that you didn't see coming. So same theory. Um, obviously, a very, very con 
concept heavy episode. Uh, we're actually in the process of doing a uh, seven part game planning series on on Patreon for the premium listeners, which is probably going to expand on this a lot. So we've kind of given you a sampler and compressed a lot of that here into this episode. But the big takeaway that I hope you've got from this is that there is overwhelming evidence that chaining your techniques is better than just doing one-offs. And if you kind of go through all of those different best practices and mental models we just talked about, hopefully you have an idea, even if you don't remember all of those things, as to why that is, that it's so powerful to have multiple sequenced or parallel attacks against an opponent versus just doing single things at a time. Wow. That was a lot of info. That that was a lot of info. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, really though, it's there's a lot. This kind of builds on top of everything we've talked about in like the past seventy plus episodes. There's a lot of reasons why technique chaining is so important, but the most important thing is just when you're doing something understand what the predictable responses are like if you're going to attack if you're going to attack a move or a submission try to figure out like what are the things that my opponent is most likely going to do from here and how can i turn that into a win because mm-hmm. you don't want a situation where like your opponent has two options and one of them is really bad for you you want a situation where everything your opponent does tightens the noose just a little bit more mm-hmm. yep and again like risk versus reward ratios and and uh, things like that always when you're structuring your game and thinking about you know is this a good sequence or a good attack chain that i'm doing it's probably not a good sequence if you end up on the bottom or you you know you're you're consistently having the same problems or ending up in bad positions um like steve said if if you go for a submission and it kind of fails um instead of considering it a failure you should be able to immediately transition to another attack and that and and in best case scenario sort of uh transition between multiple attacks all at once so that your opponent never is defending the attack that uh that you're trying to get them with uh, you know again classic example crucifix and i'm attacking the choke they start defending the choke somehow well can't really defend the choke very easily there but if they do start defending the choke i'm going to start going to the arm again and start attacking the arm they attack uh, if they defend the arm by turning it out i'll just immediately start attacking the choke again and the cycle continues until hopefully you find a breakthrough and get a finish so mm-hmm. yeah cool cool hey i got a question mm-hmm. and it's actually just by chance it is related to some of the stuff we talked about today and i didn't think it would be cool cool so here's the question in regards to Uki's responsibilities, the episode that we did a while ago, uh, you two touched on a question I have been wanting information on. How, when being an Uke, can you learn and make the time as productive as possible? While drilling and learning new techniques, half your time is spent as an Uki instead of turning off somewhat and being more of a dummy, as per se. What can be the thinking to make this time more beneficial? I understand you need to be attentive to your partner, be present, add resistance as required, and defend or otherwise do what the drill requires. However, after this, is it just thinking of how you would potentially escape, or is it relating back to the concepts that we and Rob have mentioned, such as identifying the leading edge, being aware and thinking of what stage of the guard the person is in, uh, or focusing on noticing the person's alignment and your own alignment and maybe changing the technique. Maybe not trying to think of too many things all at once, but rather one point to focus on in each drill. So basically, I think what this person is asking is like, when you are okay, how do you maximize the value of that experience for both your opponents and yourself? I think it's all the things they mentioned, you know, like, um, 
thinking about the predictable reactions and it's it's kind of a form of mental drilling if you are uh it also will depend on the drill so that's why i really like fuck your jiu-jitsu because if you're on top and the person on bottom is working their sweep game and your job on top is just to maintain top position you really get actually a good uh, a good workout in terms of active posting and and center of gravity and where your base should be so the person on the top benefits a lot as well as the person on the bottom so i think these drills are really ideal um in terms of benefiting uh in symbiotic ways whereas if you're literally just in someone's guard and they're just drilling arm bars you know you're not really doing a lot of mental drilling or physical drilling uh or the uke isn't sorry so i think one way you can do it is structure your drills in such a way where both people get something out of it and then the other way could be uh you know like live resistance but maybe 40 percent or 50 percent where you're just you're making decisions but you're not resisting so much so that way your mind still mentally drills but your partner isn't stifled in their attacks and they still get to work this stuff they want to work on too yeah yeah i think that this kind of ties back to what we talked about earlier in the episode as well i mean if the person that is doing the drills is still at the point where they're not even comfortable doing the base movements then at that point, I think it's appropriate to basically provide no resistance. Give them a few reps just to get that muscle memory. And once they're able to do these things without having to stop and think, that's when I think you need to start adding the layers of resistance. But rather than just being a stone, like that that's annoying where, you know, Uke is just not giving you anything and they're just sitting there. Have an open dialogue and basically as the person doing the drill say, like, what would you do if I tried to do this? Like, realistically, what, what are you going to do? And then kind of troubleshoot with that person as to what the different options are and then drill each of those with a bit of resistance as you discussed right so i mean a good example right like if you're if the person on the bottom is drilling triangles you would ask well what kind of predictable responses would you do i mean of course one of them is going to be like i'm going to posture up or i might try to stack you and do like that bully pass the bully stack pass there's a lot of options and maybe go through those and then start working on both of those Uh, and that gives both the person on the um, doing the drill uh, a benefit because now they're drilling with predictable responses and it gives Uke a benefit as well because now Uke is doing more than just sitting there doing nothing. They're actually drilling defenses to mm-hmm. techniques as well. So that's kind of how I would suggest that you benefit both parties when you're Uke. Yep. Cool. Very cool. Awesome. Well, again, this was a very heavy concept-based chat. Uh, we'll probably break this up into more detail elsewhere, like in our game planning series. Um, on that note, if you guys want to support us, we greatly appreciate it. You can catch us on Patreon. Go there to patreon.com slash models. If you support us there, in addition to helping keep the lights on for the show, you get early access to episodes and in premium tiers, you get access to premium content such as the game planning series that we're working on right now. If you want to support us elsewhere, you can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash store where you can pick up gi patches and pick up shirts. We're actually in the process of adding some new variants to the merch there as well. If you want more content, uh, bjjmentalmodels.com is where we've got a database of all of these online concepts. And (laughs) after today's episode, you might need to go there and do some studying to dig into what each of these things are. Um, In the show notes, I'll list all of the concepts we talked about and, and link off to the relevant articles so that you can find them more easily. You can also go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join, which is where you can sign up for our mailing list to get more content as well. We send that out once a week in most cases. And of course, if you want to get in touch with us on the website, or you can also follow us on Facebook and on Instagram, where we post regular updates and other bits and stuff as well there too. So that wraps up another episode. 
Thanks again for listening. Hope that was useful. And of course, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, please do reach out. We're pretty easy to find. Matt, closing thoughts? No. Chain them attacks. Yeah. Thanks for supporting the podcast, guys. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Take care, guys. See you next time.